1: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I'm Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Michael Sandel. Michael is an T. and Robert M. Bass Professor of Government at Harvard University, where he teaches the historically popular course on justice that has become the first Harvard course to be made freely available online. He's also an internationally renowned political philosopher. His works have been translated into 27 languages. He was recently named in China the most influential foreign figure of the year. Meanwhile, in the United States, in Newsweek, Sandel has been lauded as the world's most relevant living philosopher. Of course, I could go on and say much more by way of introduction, but let's get to it. Hello, Michael. Hello, Robert. How are you doing today? Good. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining me on Why We Argue. Uh, I've been following your work for a few decades now, as I'm sure you are aware, and I'm a real admirer of your commitment to, in particular, democratic moral argument. I wanted to focus today on your current project, which as I'm to understand it, picks up from your 2012 book, which is titled What Money Can't Buy: The Moral Limits of Markets. So maybe one way to start would be um, to ask you to tell us a little bit about the view that you take in that book. What are the moral limits of markets? Well, the book begins with
0: an observation, which is that the the very question, what should be the role of money and markets in a good society? This, this is one of the great missing debates in American public discourse, I think. Today there are fewer and fewer things that money can't buy. And if you look back over recent last few decades, we've drifted almost without realizing it from having a market economy to becoming a market society. The difference is this, a market economy is a tool, a, Valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity, but a market society is a place where Almost everything is up for sale. It's a way of life in which market thinking and market market values begin to reach into almost every aspect of life from family life and personal relations to health and education law the media civic life and the question of the book is, should we worry about becoming, mar- about becoming market societies, and if so, on what grounds?
1: And I take it that the answer is that, yes, we should be worried. Um, and part of the um, account, is a, uh, as, as I'm to understand it, is that um, there are certain kinds of goods, uh, certain kinds of values, we might say, that um, uh, are spoiled when they're um, interpreted through the lens of market exchange? Is that right?
0: Yes. Actually, the, there are two objections as I see it. One is if, if everything is up for sale, uh, the growing inequality of our societies matters a lot more than it otherwise would. If money bought access only to fancy vacations and BMW cars and yachts, inequality wouldn't matter Very much, but where money governs access to the fundamental good things in life health, education, living in a safe neighborhood, uh, political voice then inequality matters a lot more. So that's one set of reasons. But I'm also very interested in trying to explore a second reason to worry, which is just as you say, Robert, that when market reasoning and market values reach into the domain of non-material goods they often crowd out or corrupt non-market values worth caring about and we can take an example or two if you like
1: yeah can you please give us a couple of examples well one here's
0: a what may seem like a small example Um, a lot of schools struggle to motivate the kids especially kids who didn't grow up Reading in, in, with their parents to study hard, to work hard, to strive academically, to read books. And so they've experimented using financial incentives, money, as a way of motivating kids to get good grades, to study hard $50 for an A, $35 for a B, that kind of thing. They've tried this as pilot programs in New York and Chicago and Washington. In Dallas, Texas, they have a program that pays young uh 8-year-olds $2 for each book they read <laughs> now the <laughs> the goal is laudable obviously right. to get kids to read more books but the the worry is that it may actually be teaching kids the wrong lesson the money i mean mm-hmm. so so the the, the the worry is will these kids uh, uh learn that the point of reading really is is to make money, if so they may consider it a kind of piecework, in which case, when the money stops, so may the the reading and the danger is that this would that this will crowd out the intrinsic love of reading and learning
1: wow i hadn 't heard about that um and i I take it that there are um uh, may, maybe some more intuitive kinds of cases like um you know, friendship for money seems to be an easy case where it looks as if friendship for money is a kind of contradiction in thought, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. It, one, one way of thinking about what money should not be able to buy is to ask the prior question, are there some things money can't buy, even if it tries? And friendship is a good example. If if you Suppose someone wants more friends than he or she has (laughs) and finds it difficult to acquire them in the usual way. The person might think of trying to buy a few, but most most people would instantly sense that this wouldn't work. Somehow, we know that a bought friend isn't the same as a real one, and we seem intuitively to recognize that the money that would buy the friend dissolves the good we seek. So friendship is an interesting case where it seems money can't buy it even if it tries. But And this may be true also of honorific goods. If someone prays mightily to win the Nobel Prize and doesn't, it, even if they put one up for sale every year, the the, the good... Uh, That the person would aspire to would be dissolved, especially if it were known. Well, this is the bought one. You got the bought one. (laughs) And yet a great, great many other goods to do with health, to do with education, to do with uh, law and civic life may not be so obvious as cases like friendship and honorific goods where the money will instantly dissolve the good at stake. Hence, debates about whether, for example, there should be global free market in kidneys for people who need uh, kidney transplants. The kidney will work. It won't be destroyed if it's bought, assuming a good match. So if there's an objection, it must be a moral objection having to do with human dignity or treating the human person as a collection of spare parts. And people take different views about this. So the moral argument really can't be simply, but resolved by pointing that the transaction won't work.
1: Right. So can we go back to the, um, to the first argument, the inequality, uh, or the, the argument about how, you know, a market society makes inequalities matter more for a minute. Um, because, um, one of the, uh, one of the theses that, that, that appears in your work pretty frequently, um, has to do with, um, the ways in which our society sorts people, usually according to, you know, uh, the, their their economic uh, position, so yes. that we are increasingly able with money to curate our social experience so that we're able more and more uh, to buy our way out of having to interact socially and even in casual, you know, contexts with people who are not uh, economically and therefore perhaps politically uh, just like us.
0: Yes. Yes. This, this is a theme that has, has concerned me for a long time. The, the, and, and the rise of our becoming market societies exacerbates this tendency of inequality in social life, increasingly people who are affluent and people of modest means live separate lives. There are fewer and fewer common places and public spaces that gather us together and uh, across uh, social and economic backgrounds. I use an example from sports. Mm-hmm. I've always been a baseball fan and I grew up in the Midwest and loved when I was a kid to go see the Minnesota Twins play and uh, at the baseball stadium. And back in the 1960s, going to a baseball game or a football or a basketball game was a class mixing experience. That's not why we went, but it just was part of the part of the experience that CEOs and mailroom clerks sat more or less side by side at the ballpark. Everyone everyone had to drink the same stale beer and eat the same (laughs) soggy hot dogs. And when it rained, everyone got wet. Then in the 90s and early 2000s, skyboxes came in. You know, those luxury corporate skyboxes where VIPs can watch the game in, in comfort from high above the common folk in the stands below. And it's no longer true that everyone eats the same soggy hot dogs or waits in the same long lines for the restroom it's no longer true even that when it rains everyone gets wet and so going to a ballpark is not quite the class mixing experience it it was some years ago and this wouldn't matter very much if it were just happening in sports stadia but something similar i think is unfolding throughout our social life Um, increasingly um those who are affluent and those who are of modest means live and work and shop and play in different places. We send our children to different schools. I call it the skyboxification <laughs> of American life. And it's not so this goes back to to the question of the corruption of certain goods. Well, what's the good corrupted here? I think it's commonality. It's the sense that we are all in it together. At democracy doesn't require perfect equality, but what it does require is that people from different backgrounds encounter one another, bump up against one another in the course of our everyday lives, because this is how we learn to negotiate and to abide our differences, and this is how we come to care for the common good and that's That's why it seems to me the growing role and reach of markets in everyday life, is corrosive of non-market norms worth caring about, including commonality, including sharing common public spaces. So that in some ways, I think, is the most insidious consequence of the the track we've been on for the last several decades.
1: Right. And it's important, I, I guess, just to emphasize that part of what gets corrupted in market society are, um, as you say, the kinds of goods like commonality and the the sense that we are sharers of the same social fate. Uh, These are democratic values that are getting corrupted, right? We often think or we're encouraged to think anyway that what's good for the market is also good for uh, 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 democracy or good for society across the board. But it seems as if what you're pointing to is that um, market, the, the values of the market society, when they overreach, Uh, actually wind up corrupting um, uh, democratic civic life. Is that right?
0: Yes, exactly. And the most familiar way that we see market overreach corrupting democracy is in the system of campaign finance we have in the United States. We're all familiar with that that complaint that um, money talks in, in politics, thanks in part to the US Supreme Court decision that Money is a form of free speech in politics, but the more insidious effect in a way, the deeper and less visible. But I think even more consequential effect of market overreach in in eroding democratic norms has to do with the way it separates us, the way it corrodes commonality. And and so that's um that's, I think, one of the deepest, uh, deepest dangers to to democracy, uh, to a shared civic life.
1: Right. So um, I understand that you're 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 involved now in a new initiative, which involves you joining um, an international group of students. In an exploration of the question, uh, and this is—I I was telling somebody about this yesterday, and they said that is such a Michael Sandel question. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, what if anything is wrong with a world in which everything is for sale? Uh, can you tell us about the project? Yes, uh,
0: the the project—it's a new online video series that will be free and open to the public, and it's just now um, the first episode is being launched. Since the the free online uh, series of justice lectures reached a lot of people and, and generated, uh, generated interest, we wanted to do some, something similar with uh, what money can't buy, the question of what should and should not be up for sale. And so with the support of a group called the Institute for New Economic Thinking, we created this new video series where uh, students from Different countries around the world come together in a seminar setting to debate some contested areas of commodification as a way of we're hoping to prompt public debate about the role and reach of money and of market thinking. And we're also hoping to provide an educational resource for students and teachers of introductory economics courses who might want to include a, a week or a unit on the the normative aspects of economics, which I think are all too often neglected in the teaching of economics.
1: Right. So um, how old are the students? The students are
0: university age, ah. college seniors, uh, juniors and seniors
1: for the most part. And they're debating sort of particular questions about um, particular commodities or particular things that might be commodified?
0: yes for example we have uh one session on um employment discrimination on what grounds can people be hired uh can, can people legitimately be um uh hired uh for um, jobs we start with the example of looks is it <laughs> is it just or just to uh To hire people based on whether they're good looking. You you may may remember Abercrombie and Fitch got into some trouble for doing this quite blatantly not too long ago. And so it raises questions about consumer preferences, trying to uh, maximize profit, but at the cost of discriminating We generally accept you can't do that with race. But what about looks? What about other talents? So that's one way of looking at employment markets. And then um, a number of other cases having to do with the environment, with tradable permits for refugee asylum, for immigration. Should we put citizenship up for sale? Uh, As some have proposed and as some countries do, in effect, when they provide foreign investor visas. So we have a we have an episode on on the use of markets in trying to resolve tough debates about citizenship. What about votes? Should we pay people to get them, get more people to vote? Should we let people buy and sell their votes if, if some people don't much care about the outcome of the election? And. There will always be buyers for votes. We know that. <laughs> why should why should that not be permitted? These are all ways of testing the economic logic or mainstream market thinking, which often says that so long as two parties to a deal think it's worth their while, and so long as they're not hurting anybody else, then why should there not be a free market? So we test that fundamental idea in a lot of settings, Some some of them faithful and others somewhat humorous <laughs>
1: um, and since it's an international group of students, have you found any philosophical differences or any any trends in you know the students' reactions or their approaches to the questions in ways that were surprising to you are there are American students more supportive of uh, the market society answers uh, to some of these questions <laughs> In the seminars
0: we did for the new series, uh, it's a it's a, a small enough group that it's hard to generalize about cultural differences. But in the public lectures I've been doing in various places around the world, I have noticed some interesting differences. Uh, the most market-friendly moral intuitions, market-enthusiastic <laughs> moral intuitions, I find in, well, in the U.S., certainly, and um uh, see if you can guess there's one other country uh, strikingly with where the young people love love markets see, see if you can take a guess where it might be uh, uh, japan china oh. china <laughs> the, there's a, there's great interest in debating these questions among young people in China, but their their moral intuitions in response to the hypothetical and actual cases that I give them are at least as pro-market as American young people. And uh, this, I think, reflects their, the recent experience they've had with markets, which have brought tremendous economic growth. And yet, They recognize, as I think even now the the government and the party do, that GDPism alone is not enough to sustain a society or a set of meanings. And so I find, on the one hand, an enthusiasm for markets, but also a searching, even a hunger for engagement with larger uh, moral and ethical questions in public life.
1: Well, Michael, it sounds like a fantastic uh, project and series, and the series is called um, What Money Can't Buy?
0: Yes, exactly, and uh, it's um, the first episode is available online now on YouTube, on Facebook, so uh, you can just uh, check it out. Your listeners can and see what they think.
1: Oh, well, that's fantastic. So look, you've been very generous with your time. So I want to uh, sort of wrap up and just ask one big question, even though, <laughs> even though we only have a few minutes. Um, so I, I suspect you're, you know, well, I know uh, that, that you're like many of us, um, troubled by the current state of political discourse, especially in the United States, but not only in the United States. How do you see this new project as, as helping to uh, rehabilitate democratic engagement?
0: A big goal of the current project is to try to provide an example, a vivid and we hope engaging example of what a morally more robust kind of public discourse might look like. Uh, we're not very good at reasoning together in public, speaking of we in the United States uh, in recent decades, we're not very good at reasoning together in public About substantive ethical questions. There is a kind of hollowness, emptiness in the terms of public discourse. What passes for political discourse these days in the U.S. and many other democratic societies is either narrowly managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or when passion does enter, shouting matches on cable television and talk radio, where where politicians and commentators are, are arguing past one another without really listening. So, part of part of my aim in the new series What Money Can't Buy as in the books is to try to invite and provoke um, citizens to to a better kind of public discourse, one that doesn't avoid or set aside the moral and spiritual convictions that citizens bring to public life, but engages with them. Not because a morally engaged kind of public discourse will lead to universal agreement on any particular issue, but because it will will help fill the void, the moral emptiness, the hollowness that currently exists in public discourse. And ultimately, it will teach us something about one another. It might teach us the art of listening to one another, even where we disagree. And ultimately, I think this art of listening, this capacity to reason about hard moral questions in public is a capacity. It's a virtue we need to be democratic citizens.
1: Well, that sounds uh, right to me. Um, and, you know, one of the themes that's come up often on this, uh, this particular podcast series has been how democratic public discourse, at least in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., how, how much of it is, is organized around the objective of giving citizens the ability to find out what their opponents think without actually having to talk to any real person who disagrees with them about anything. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the people on the one side of the question are getting their view about what the other side thinks from their own side. Exactly. Which seems like a recipe for, I mean, not only for not understanding the people on the other side, but also, um, you know, just a a recipe for, um, you know, for losing the ability to engage uh, productively in those you know now increasingly rare occasions where you actually have to do, you have to look somebody else in the eye who doesn't agree with you, right?
0: Yes, I so, think this is very
1: important. So the model, uh, so the idea of providing a a model of how successful discourse of of the right kind can be done, seems to me to be um, a real crucial part of this puzzle because I, I suspect that part of the dysfunction of public discourse uh, is is that we've we've lost. We've lost faith in the ability in our ability to do it well, does that seem like it might be right?
0: I think it does, and I think there are a number of reasons for this. One of them, I think, has to do with something we've been discussing here, which is the growing role and pervasiveness of market thinking and market reasoning in public discourse this has had this has had the effect of crowding explicit moral argument out of uh, public discourse because part of the appeal of market reasoning is that it seems to spare us the need to actually judge and argue about competing conceptions about the right way to value goods and social practices. Market reasoning I think appeals, not just because it seems to deliver the goods, so to speak, rising GDP, but it seems to be a neutral way of resolving contested questions about how to value uh, goods and social practices. But the neutrality is misleading. It's actually spurious, I think. And so it's a symptom, I think, the emphasis on market reasoning and market thinking in politics It's a symptom of our desire, uh, our penchant to avoid engaging with controversial conceptions of the good and of virtue in politics. And so what what I'm hoping to do with the new series and what I've been trying to do in, in my writings is to argue that we can find our way to a better kind of public discourse, but only if we give up the aspiration to a kind of value-neutral public discourse only if we embrace and engage with a morally robust kind of public discourse that welcomes moral and spiritual convictions, competing conceptions of the good life right into the heart of democratic debate. Some, Some believe that the way to a tolerant society is to ask citizens to leave their moral and and spiritual convictions outside when they enter the public square. I think this is a mistake because it leads to a morally empty public square, which in the end, people can't abide. I think that a, a better way to a tolerant society is not to avoid, but to engage with the competing conceptions of the good and of virtue and how to value goods that citizens actually do care about but to do that we have to cultivate uh, the art of listening and the habit of of reasoning together in public about big questions including moral questions that c- democratic citizens care about
1: well that's music to my ears michael um So thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. It's been wonderful, and I really look forward to uh, checking out the the new series, which is called What Money Can't Buy. And I I suspect that it it can be found on YouTube, but there's also a web page, right? Whatmoneycantbuy.org. Is that correct? That's
0: right. Exactly.
1: Well, great. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, Michael. Thank you, Robert. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thank you so much. And bye for now.